Part two of the Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans From His Last Bow This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver His Last Bow by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans Part two the house of the famous official was a fine villa with green lawns, stretching down to the Thames. As we reached it the fog was lifting, and a thin, watery sunshine was breaking through. A butler answered our ring. "'Sir James, sir,' said he with a solemn face, "'Sir James died this morning.' "'Good heavens!' cried Holmes in amazement. "'How did he die?' "'Perhaps you would care to step in, sir, and see his brother, Colonel Valentine?' "'Yes, we had best do so.' We were ushered into a dim-lit drawing-room, where an instant later we were joined by a very tall, handsome, light-bearded man of fifty, the younger brother of the dead scientist. His wild eyes, stained cheeks, and unkept hair all spoke of the sudden blow which had fallen upon the household. He was hardly articulate as he spoke of it. "'It was this horrible scandal,' said he. My brother Sir James was a man of very sensitive honour, and he could not survive such an affair. It broke his heart. He was always so proud of the efficiency of his department, and this was a crushing blow. We had hoped that he might have given us some indications which would have helped us to clear up the matter. I assure you that it was all a mystery to him, as it is to you, and to all of us. He had already put all his knowledge at the disposal of the police. Naturally he had no doubt that Cadogan West was guilty, but all the rest was inconceivable. "'You cannot throw any new light upon the affair?' "'I know nothing myself, save what I have read or heard. I have no desire to be discourteous, but you can understand, Mr. Holmes, that we are much disturbed at present, and I must ask you to hasten this interview to an end.' "'This is indeed an unexpected development,' said my friend when we had regained the cab. "'I wonder if the death was natural, or whether the poor old fellow killed himself.' If the latter, may it be taken as some sign of self-reproach, for duty neglected? We must leave that question to the future. Now we shall turn to the Godogan Wests. A small but well-kept house in the outskirts of the town sheltered the bereaved mother. The old lady was two days with grief to be of any use to us, but at her side was a white-faced young lady, who introduced herself as Miss Violet Westbury, the fiancée of the dead man and the last to see him upon the fatal night. "'I cannot explain it, Mr. Holmes,' she said. "'I have not shut an eye since the tragedy, thinking, 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 night and day, what the true meaning of it can be. Arthur was the most single-minded, chivalrous, patriotic man upon earth. He would have cut his right hand off, before he would sell a state secret confined to his keeping. It is absurd, impossible.' "'Preposterous to anyone who knew him.' "'But the facts, Miss Westbury?' "'Yes. Yes, I admit I cannot explain them.' "'Was he in any want of money?' "'No. His needs were very simple, and his salary ample. "'He had saved a few hundreds, and we were to marry at the new year.' "'No signs of any mental excitement? "'Come, Miss Westbury, be absolutely frank with us.' The quick eye of my companion had noted some change in her manner. She coloured and hesitated. "'Yes,' 
she said at last. I had a feeling that there was something on his mind. For long? Only for the last week or so. He was thoughtful and worried. Once I pressed him about it. He admitted that there was something, and that it was concerned with his official life. It is too serious for me to speak about, even to you, said he. I could get nothing more. Holmes looked grave. Go on, Miss Westbury, even if it seems to tell against him, go on. We cannot say what it may lead to. Indeed, I have nothing more to tell. Once or twice it seemed to me that he was on the point of telling me something. He spoke one evening of the importance of the secret, and I have some recollection that he said that no doubt foreign spies would pay a great deal to have it. My friend's face grew graver still. Anything else? He said that we were slack about such matters, that it would be easy for a traitor to get the plans. Was it only recently that he made such remarks? Yes, quite recently. Now tell us of that last evening. The fog was so thick that a cab was useless. We walked, and our way took us close to the office. Suddenly he darted away into the fog. Without a word? He gave an exclamation, that was all. I waited, but he never returned. Then I walked home. Next morning, after the office opened, they came to inquire. About twelve o'clock we heard the terrible news. Oh, Mr. Holmes, if you could only, only save his honour. It was so much to him. Holmes shook his head sadly. Come, Watson, said he. Our ways lie elsewhere. Our next station must be the office from which the papers were taken. It was black enough before against this young man, but our inquiries make it blacker, he remarked as the cab lumbered off. His coming marriage gives a motive for the crime. He naturally wanted money. The idea was in his head, since he spoke about it. He nearly made the girl an accomplice in the treason by telling her his plans. It is all very bad. But surely, Holmes, character goes for something. Then again, why should he leave the girl in the street and dart away to commit a felony? Exactly. There are certain objections. But it is a formidable case which they have to meet. Mr. Sidney Johnson, the senior clerk, met us at the office and received us with that respect which my companion's card always commanded. He was a thin, gruff, bespectacled man of middle age, his cheeks haggard, and his hands twitching from the nervous strain to which he had been subjected. "'It is bad, Holmes, very bad. Have you heard of the death of the chief?' "'We have just come from his house.' "'The place is disorganized. The chief dead, Cadogan West dead, our papers stolen. And yet, when we closed our door on Monday evening, we were an efficient as office as any in the government service. Good God, it's dreadful to think of!' "'that West, of all men, should have done such a thing.' "'You are sure of his guilt, then? "'I could see no other way out of it, "'and yet I would have trusted him as I trust myself. "'At what hour was the office closed on Monday?' "'At five. "'Did you close it? "'I am always the last man out. "'Where were the plans? "'In that safe. "'I put them there myself. "'Is there no watchman to the building?' "'There is.' "'but he has other departments to look after as well. "'He is an old soldier, and a most trustworthy man. "'He saw nothing that evening. "'Of course, the fog was very thick. "'Suppose that Cadogan West wished to make his way into the building after hours. "'He would need three keys, would he not, before he could reach the papers?' 
"'Yes, he would. "'The key of the after-door, the key of the office, "'and the key of the safe.' "'Only Sir James Walter and you had those keys?' "'I had no keys of the doors, only of the safe.' "'Was Sir James a man who was orderly in his habits?' "'Yes, I think he was. "'I know that so far as those three keys are concerned, "'he kept them on the same ring. "'I have often seen them there.' "'And that ring went with him to London?' "'He said so.' "'And your keys never left your possession?' "'Never.' "'Then West, if he is the culprit, must have had a duplicate, "'and yet none was found upon his body. "'One other point. "'If a clerk in this office desired to sell the plans, "'would it not be simpler to copy the plans for himself "'than to take the originals, as was actually done?' "'It would take considerable technical knowledge "'to copy the plans in an effective way.' "'But I suppose either Sir James, or you, or West, "'had that technical knowledge?' "'No doubt we had it. "'But I beg you won't try to drag me into this matter, Mr. Holmes. "'What is the use of us speculating in this way, "'when the original plans were actually found on West?' "'Well, it is certainly singular that he should run the risk of taking originals, "'if he could safely have taken copies, "'which would have equally served his turn. "'Singular, no doubt, and yet he did so.' "'Every inquiry in this case reveals something inexplicable. "'Now there are three papers still missing. "'They are, as I understand, the vital ones?' "'Yes, that is so.' "'Do you mean to say that anyone holding these three papers, "'and without the seven others, "'could construct a Bruce Partington submarine?' "'I reported to that effect to the Admiralty. "'But today I have been going over the drawings again, "'and I am not so sure of it. "'The double valves with the automatic self-adjusting slots are drawn in one of the papers which have been returned. Until the foreigners had invented that for themselves, they could not make the boat. Of course, they might soon get over the difficulty. But the three missing drawings are the most important? Undoubtedly. I thank you. With your permission, I will now take a stroll round the premises. I do not recall any other question which I desire to ask. He examined the lock of the safe, the door of the room, and finally the iron shutters of the window. It was only when we were on the lawn outside that his interest was strongly excited. There was a laurel bush outside the window, and several of the branches bore signs of having been twisted or snapped. He examined them carefully with his lens, and then some dim and vague marks upon the earth beneath. Finally he asked the chief clerk to close the iron shutters, and he pointed out to me that they hardly met in the centre and that it would be possible for anyone outside to see what was going on within the room. The indications are ruined by the three days' delay. They may mean something or nothing. Well, Watson, I do not think that Woolwich can help us further. It is a small crop which we have gathered. Let us see if we can do better in London. Yet we added one more sheaf to our harvest, before we left Woolwich Station. The clerk in the ticket office was able to say with confidence that he saw Cadogan West, whom he knew well by sight, upon the Monday night, and that he went to London by the 8.15 to London Bridge. He was alone, and took a single third-class ticket. The clerk was struck at the time by his excited and nervous manner. So shaky was he that he could hardly pick up his change, and the clerk had helped him with it. A reference to the timetable showed that the 8.15 was the first train which it was possible for West to take after he'd left the lady about 
"'Let us reconstruct, Watson,' said Holmes, after half an hour of silence. "'I am not aware that in all our joint researches "'we have ever had a case which was more difficult to get at. "'Every fresh advice which we make only reveals a fresh ridge beyond, "'and yet we have surely made some appreciable progress. "'The effect of our inquiries at Woolwich "'has in the main been against young Cadogan West.' "'but the indications at the window would lend themselves to a more favourable hypothesis. "'Let us suppose, for example, that he had been approached by some foreign agent. "'It might have been done under such pledges as would have prevented him from speaking of it, "'and yet would have affected his thoughts in the direction indicated by his remarks to his fiancée. "'Very good. "'We will now suppose that as he went to the theatre with the young lady, "'he suddenly, in the fog, caught a glimpse of the same agent going in the direction of the office.' He was an impetuous man, quick in his decisions. Everything gave way to his duty. He followed the man, reached the window, saw the abstraction of the documents, and pursued the thief. In this way we get over the objection that no one would take originals when he could make copies. This outsider had to take originals. So far it holds together. What is the next step? Then we come into difficulties. One would imagine that, under such circumstances, the first act of young Cadogan West would be to seize the villain and raise the alarm. Why did he not do so? Could it have been an official superior who took the papers? That would explain West's conduct. Or could the chief have given West the slip in the fog, and West started at once to London to head him off from his own rooms, presuming that he knew where the rooms were? The call must have been very pressing, since he left his girl standing in the fog and made no effort to communicate with her. Our scent runs cold here, and there is a vast gap between either hypothesis and the laying of West's body, with seven papers in his pocket, on the roof of a metropolitan train. My instinct now is to work from the other end. If Mycroft has given us a list of addresses, we may be able to pick up our man and follow two tracks instead of one. Surely enough, a note awaited us at Baker Street. A government messenger had brought it post-haste. Holmes glanced at it and threw it over to me. There were numerous small fry, but few who would handle so big an affair. The only men worth considering are Adolf Mayer, of 13 Great George Street, Westminster, Louis Le Rothair, of Camden Mansions, Notting Hill, and Hugh Oberstein, 13 Coalfield Gardens, Kensington. The latter was known to be in town on Monday, and is now reported as having left. Glad to hear you have seen some light. The cabinet awaits your final report with the utmost anxiety. Urgent representations have arrived from the highest quarter. The whole force of the state is at your back if you should need it. Mycroft. I'm afraid, said Holmes, smiling, that all the Queen's horses and all the Queen's men cannot avail in this matter. He had spread out his big map of London and leaned eagerly over it. Well, well, said he presently, with an exclamation of satisfaction. Things are turning a little in our direction at last. Why, Watson, I do honestly believe that we are going to pull it off after all. He slapped me on the shoulder with a sudden burst of hilarity. I am going out now. It is only a reconnaissance. I will do nothing serious without my trusted comrade and biographer at my elbow. Do you stay here, and the odds are that you will see me again in an hour or two. If time hangs heavy, get Fullscap and a pen, and begin your narrative of how we saved the state. 
I felt some reflection of his elation in my own mind, for I knew well that he would not depart so far from his usual austerity of demeanour, unless there was good cause for exultation. All the long November evening I waited, filled with impatience for his return. At last, shortly after nine o'clock, there arrived a messenger with a note. "'I'm dining at Goldini's restaurant, Gloucester Road, Kensington. Please come at once and join me there. Bring with you a jemmy, a dark lantern, a chisel, and a revolver. S.H.' It was a nice equipment for a respectable citizen to carry through the dim, fog-draped streets. I stowed them all discreetly away in my overcoat, and drove straight to the address given. There sat my friend at a little round table near the door of the garish Italian restaurant. "'Have you had something to eat? Then join me in a coffee and caracayo. Try one of the proprietor's cigars. They are less poisonous than one would expect. Have you the tools?' "'They are here in my overcoat.' "'Excellent. Let me give you a short sketch of what I have done, with some indication of what we are about to do. Now it must be evident to you, Watson, that this young man's body was placed on the roof of the train. That was clear from the instant that I determined the fact that it was from the roof and not from the carriage that he had fallen. Could it not have been dropped from a bridge? I should say it was impossible. If you examine the roofs you will find that they are slightly rounded, and there is no railing round them.' "'Therefore we can say for certainty that young Cadogan West was placed on it. "'How could he be placed there?' "'That was the question which we had to answer. "'There is only one possible way. "'You are aware that the underground runs clear of tunnels at some points in the West End. "'I had a vague memory that as I had travelled by it "'I have occasionally seen windows just above my head. "'Now suppose that a train halted under such a window. "'Would there be any difficulty in laying a body upon the roof?' "'It seems most improbable. "'We must fall back upon the old axiom "'that, when all other contingencies fail, "'whatever remains, however improbable, "'must be the truth. "'Here all other contingencies have failed. "'When I found that the leading international agent, "'who had just left London, "'lived in a row of houses, "'which abutted upon the underground, "'I was so pleased that you were a little astonished "'at my sudden frivolity. "'Oh, that was it, was it?' "'Yes, that it was. "'Mr. Hugo Oberstein, of 13 Calfield Gardens, "'had become my objective. "'I began my operations at Gloucester Road Station, "'where a very helpful official walked with me along the track, "'and allowed me to satisfy myself, "'not only that the black stair windows of Calfield Gardens "'open on the line, "'but the even more essential fact that, "'owing to the intersection of one of the largest railways, "'the underground trains are frequently held motionless for some minutes,' "'at that very spot. "'Splendid, Holmes, you have got it. "'So far, so far, Watson. "'We advance, but the goal is afar. "'Well, having seen the back of Coalfield Gardens, "'I visited the front, "'and satisfied myself that the bird was indeed flown. "'It is a considerable house, "'unfurnished, so far as I could judge, in the upper rooms. "'Oberstein lived there with a single valet, "'who was probably a confederate entirely in his confidence.' We must bear in mind that Oberstein has gone to the continent to dispose of his beauty, but not with any idea of flight, for he had no reason to fear a warrant, and the idea of an amateur domiciliary visit would certainly never occur to him. Yet, that is precisely what we are about to make. Could we not get a warrant and legalise it? Hardly on the evidence. 
"'What can we hope to do?' "'We cannot tell what correspondence may be there.' "'I don't like it, Holmes.' "'My dear fellow, you shall keep watch in the street. "'I'll do the criminal part. "'It's not a time to stick at trifles. "'Think of my cross-note, of the admiralty, the cabinet, "'the exalted person who waits for news. "'We are bound to go.' "'My answer was to rise from the table.' "'You are right, Holmes. We are bound to go.' He sprung up and shook me by the hand. "'I knew you would not shrink at the last,' said he. And, for a moment, I saw something in his eyes which was nearer to tenderness than I had ever seen. The next instant he was his masterful, practical self once more. "'It is nearly half a mile, but there is no hurry. Let us walk,' said he. "'Don't drop the instruments, I beg.' "'Your arrest as a suspicious character "'would be a most unfortunate complication.' "'Coalfield Gardens was one of those lines "'of flat-faced, pillared, and porticoed houses, "'which are so prominent a product "'in the middle Victorian epoch "'in the west end of London. "'Next door there appeared to be a children's party, "'for the merry buzz of young voices "'and the clatter of a piano resounded through the night. "'The fog still hung about, "'and screened us with its friendly shade.' Holmes had lit his lantern, and flashed it upon the massive door. "'This is a serious proposition,' said he. "'It is certainly bolted as well as locked. "'We would do better in the area. "'There is an excellent archway down yonder "'in case a too zealous policeman should intrude. "'Give me a hand, Watson, and I'll do the same for you.' A moment later we were both in the area. Hardly had we reached the dark shadows before the step of the policeman was heard in the fog above. As its soft rhythm died away, Holmes set to work upon the lower door. I saw him stoop and strain, until, with a sharp crash, it flew open. We sprang through into the dark passage, closing the area door behind us. Holmes led the way up the curving, uncarpeted stair. His little fan of yellow light shone upon a low window. "'Here we are, Watson. This must be the one.' He threw it open, and as he did so there was a low, harsh murmur growing steadily into a loud roar as a train dashed past us in the darkness. Holmes swept his light along the window-sill. It was thickly coated with soot from the passing engines, but the blacked surface was blurred and rubbed in places. "'You can see where they rested the body. Hello, Watson, what is this? There could be no doubt that this is a blood-mark.' He was pointing to a faint discolorations along the woodwork of the window. "'Here it is on the stone of the stair also.' The demonstration is complete. Let us stay here until a train stops. We had not long to wait. The very next train roared from the tunnel as before, but slowed in the open, and then, with a creak and a brakes, pulled up immediately beneath us. It was not four feet from the window-ledge to the roof of the carriage. Holmes softly closed the window. So far we are justified, said he. What do you think of it, Watson? A masterpiece. "'You have never risen to a greater height. "'I cannot agree with you there, "'from the moment that I conceived the idea of the body being upon the roof, "'which surely was not a very obtruse one. "'All the rest was inevitable. "'If it were not for the grave interest involved, "'the affair up to this point would be insignificant. "'Our difficulties are still before us, "'but perhaps we may find something here which may help us.' "'We had ascended the kitchen stair, "'and entered the suite of rooms upon the first floor.' One was a dining-room, severely furnished, and containing nothing of interest. 
A second was a bedroom, which also drew blank. The remaining room appeared more promising, and my companion settled down to a systematic examination. It was littered with books and papers, and was evidently used as a study. Swiftly and methodically, Holmes turned over the contents of drawer after drawer, and cupboard after cupboard. But no gleam of success came to brighten his austere face. At the end of an hour he was no further than when he had started. "'The cunning dog has covered his tracks,' said he. "'He has left nothing to incriminate him. "'His dangerous correspondence has been destroyed or removed. "'This is our last chance.' "'It was a small tin cash-box which stood upon the writing-desk. "'Holmes pried it open with his chisel. "'Several rolls of paper were within, "'covered with figures and calculations, "'without any note to show to what they referred. "'The recurring words, water-pressure, and pressure to the square inch, suggested some possible relation to a submarine. Holmes tossed them all impatiently aside. There only remained an envelope with some small newspaper slips inside it. He shook them out onto the table, and at once I saw by his eager face that his hopes had been raised. What's this, Watson, eh? What's this? Record of a series of messages and the advertisements of a paper. Daily Telegraph agony column by the print and paper. "'Right-hand top corner of a page. No date. "'But messages arrange themselves. This must be the first. "'Hope to hear sooner. Terms agreed to. Write fully to address given on card. Piero. "'Next comes. Too complex for description. Master full report. Stuff awaits you when goods delivered. Piero. "'Then comes. Matter presses. Must withdraw offer unless contract completed. Make appointment by letter. Will confirm by advertisement.' Piero. Finally. Monday after nine. Two taps. Only ourselves. Do not be suspicious. Payment in hard cash when goods delivered. Piero. A fairly complete record, Watson. If we could only get at the man at the other end. He said, lost in thought, tapping his fingers on the table. Finally he sprang to his feet. Well, perhaps it won't be so difficult after all. There is nothing more to be done here, Watson. I think we might drive round to the offices of the Daily Telegraph, and so bring a good day's work to conclusion. Mycroft Holmes and Lestrade had come round by appointment after breakfast next day, and Sherlock Holmes had recounted to them our proceedings of the day before. The professional shook his head over our confessed burglary. We can't do these things in the force, Mr. Holmes, said he. No wonder you get results that are beyond us. But some of these days you'll go too far and you'll find yourself and your friend in trouble. For England, home and beauty, eh, Watson? Martyrs on the altar of our country. But what do you think of it, Mycroft? Excellent, Sherlock. Admirable. But what use will you make of it? Holmes picked up the daily telegraph, which lay on the table. Have you seen Piero's advertisement today? What, another one? Yes, here it is. Tonight, same hour, same place, two taps. "'Most vitally important. Your own safety at stake. Piero.' "'By George!' cried Lestrade. "'If he answers that, we've got him.' "'That was my idea when I put it in. "'I think if you could both make it convenient to come with us, about eight o'clock, to Coalfield Gardens, "'we might possibly get a little nearer to a solution.' "'One of the most remarkable characteristics of Sherlock Holmes "'was his power of throwing his brain out of action "'and switching all his thoughts on to lighter things.' 
whenever he had convinced himself that he could no longer work to advantage. I remember that day, the whole of that memorable day, he lost himself in a monograph, which he had undertaken upon the polyphonic motes of Lassus. For my own part I had none of this power of detachment, and the day, in consequence, appeared interminable. The great national importance of the issue, the sense in high quarters, the direct nature of the experiment which we were trying, all combined to work upon my nerve. It was a relief to me when at last, after a light dinner, we set out upon our expedition. Lestrade and Mycroft met us by appointment, at the outside of Gloucester Road Station. The area door of Oberstein's house had been left open the night before, and it was necessary for me, as Mycroft Holmes absolutely and indignantly declined to climb the railings, to pass in and open the hall door. By nine o'clock we were all seated in the study, waiting patiently for our man. An hour passed, and yet another. When eleven struck, the measured beat of the great church clock seemed to sound the dirge of our hopes. Lestrade and Maycroft were fidgeting in their seats, and looking twice a minute at their watches. Holmes sat silent and composed, his eyelids half shut, but every sense on alert. He raised his head with a sudden jerk. "'He is coming,' said he. There had been a furtive step past the door. Now it returned. We heard a shuffling sound outside, and then two sharp taps with the knocker. Holmes rose, motioning us to remain seated. The gas in the hall was a mere point of light. He opened the outer door, and then, as a dark figure slipped past him, he closed it and fastened it. "'This way,' we heard him say, and a moment later our man stood before us. Holmes had followed him closely, and as the man turned with a cry of surprise and alarm, he caught him by the collar and threw him back into the room. Before our prisoner had recovered his balance, the door was shut, and Holmes standing with his back against it. The man glared round him, staggered, and fell senseless upon the floor. With the shock, his broad-brimmed hat flew from his head, his cravat slipped down from his lips, and there were the long light beard and the soft, handsome, delicate features of Colonel Valentine Walter. Holmes gave a whistle of surprise. "'You can write me down and ask this time, Watson,' said he. "'This was not the bird that I was looking for.' "'Who is he?' asked Mycroft eagerly. "'The younger brother of the late Sir James Walter, the head of the submarine department.' "'Yes, yes. I see the fall of the cards. "'He is coming, too. "'I think that you had best leave his examination to me.' "'We had carried the prostrate body to the sofa. "'Now our prisoner sat up, "'looked round him with a horror-strucken face, "'and passed his hand over his forehead, "'like one who cannot believe his own senses. "'What is this?' he asked. "'I came here to visit Mr. Oberstein.' "'Everything is known, Colonel Walter,' said Holmes. How an English gentleman could behave in such a manner is beyond my comprehension. But your whole correspondence and relations with Oberstein are within our knowledge. So also are the circumstances connected with the death of young Cadogan West. Let me advise you to gain at least the small credit for repentance and a confession, since there are still some details which we can only learn from your lips. The man groaned and sank his face in his hands. We waited, but he was silent. "'I can assure you,' said Holmes, "'that every essential is already known. "'We know that you were pressed for money, "'that you took an impress of the keys which your brother held, "'and that you entered into a correspondence with Oberstein, 
who answered your letters through the advertisement columns of the Daily Telegraph. We are aware that you went down to the office in the fog on Monday night, but that you were seen and followed by young Cadogan West, who had probably some previous reason to suspect you. He saw your theft, but could not give the alarm, as it was just possible that you had taken the papers to your brother in London. Leaving all his private concerns, like the good citizen that he was, he followed you closely in the fog, and kept at your heels until you reached this very house. There he intervened, and then it was, Colonel, that to treason you added the more terrible crime of murder. "'I did not, I did not, before God I swear that I did not,' cried our wretched prisoner. "'Tell us, then, how Godogan West met his end before you laid him upon the roof of a railway carriage.' "'I will, I swear to you that I will. I did the rest, I confess it. It was just as you say. A stock exchange debt had to be paid. I needed the money badly.' Oberstein offered me five thousand. It was to save myself from ruin. But as to murder, I am as innocent as you. What happened, then? He had his suspicions before, and he followed me as you describe. I never knew it until I was at this very door. It was thick fog, and one could not see three yards. I had given two taps, and Oberstein came to the door. The young man rushed up and demanded to know what we were about to do with the papers. Oberstein had a short life-preserver. He always carried it with him. As West forced his way after us into the house, Oberstein struck him on the head. The blow was a fatal one. He was dead within five minutes. There he lay in the hall, and we were at our wit's end what to do. Then Oberstein had this idea about the trains which halted under his back window. But first he examined the papers which I had brought. He said that three of them were essential, and that he must keep them. "'You cannot keep them,' said I. "'There will be a dreadful rout, will it, if they are not returned?' "'I must keep them,' said he, "'for they are so technical that it is impossible in time to make copies.' "'Then they must all go back together to-night,' said I. He thought for a little, and then he cried out that he had it. Three I will keep,' said he. "'The others we will stuff into the pocket of this young man.' When he is found, the whole business will assuredly be put to his account. I could see no other way of it, so we did as he suggested. We waited half an hour at the window before a train stopped. It was so thick that nothing could be seen, and we had no difficulty lowering West's body onto the train. That was the end of the matter, so far as I was concerned. And your brother? He said nothing, but he had caught me once with his keys, and I think that he suspected— I read in his eyes that he suspected. As you know, he never held up his head again. There was silence in the room. It was broken by Mycroft Holmes. Can you not make reparation? It would ease your conscience, and possibly your punishment. What reparation can I make? Where is Oberstein with the papers? I do not know. Did he give you no address?' He said that letters to the Hotel de Louvre, Paris, would eventually reach him. "'Then reputation is still within your power,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'I will do anything I can. I owe this fellow no particular good will. He has been my ruin and my downfall. "'Here are pen and paper. Sit at this desk and write to my dictation. Direct the envelope to the address given. That is right. Now the letter. "'Dear Sir,' With regard to our transaction, you will no doubt have observed by now that one essential detail is missing. 
"'I have a tracing which will make it complete. "'This has involved me in extra trouble, however, "'and I must ask you for a further advance of five hundred pounds. "'I will not trust it to the post, "'nor will I take anything but gold or notes. "'I would come to you abroad, "'but it would excite remark if I left the country at present. "'Therefore I shall expect to meet you in the smoking-room "'of the Charing Cross Hotel at noon on Saturday. "'Remember that only English notes or gold will be taken.' "'That will do very well. "'I shall be very much surprised if it does not fetch our man.' "'And it did. "'It is a matter of history, "'that secret history of a nation, "'which is often so much more intimate and interesting "'than its public chronicles, "'that Oberstein, eager to complete the coup of his lifetime, "'came to the lure and was safely engulfed "'for fifteen years in a British prison. "'In his trunk were found the invaluable Bruce Partington plans.' "'which he had put up for auction in all the naval centres of Europe. "'Colonel Walter died in prison towards the end of the second year of his sentence. "'As to Holmes, he returned refreshed to his monograph "'upon the polyphonic motes of Lassus, "'which has since been printed for private circulation, "'and it is said by experts to be the last word upon the subject. "'Some weeks afterwards I learned, incidentally, "'that my friend spent a day at Windsor.' whence he returned with a remarkably fine emerald tie-pin. When I asked him if he had brought it, he answered that it was a present from a certain gracious lady, in whose interests he had once been fortunate enough to carry out a small commission. He said no more, but I fancy that I could guess at the lady's august name, and I have little doubt that the emerald pin will forever recall to my friend's memory the adventure of the Bruce Partington plans. End of the Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans, Part 2